light has dawned. Those are the words of the prophet Isaiah that form the theme for what we're doing this Advent. And those are the words that Jesus takes up for himself in Matthew chapter 4 when he describes his ministry. And that is the language that John uses when he describes Jesus' birth. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This world can be a dark place. There is a lot that is broken about this world, and a lot that should break our hearts. I just think about, like, like just... Think about these statistics, right? This is here in America. I mean, one in 13 adults wrestles with some kind of substance abuse addiction. And one in four girls and one in six boys will be intimately abused before the age of 18. And a quarter of women in the United States experience domestic violence at some point. And those numbers and all the other ones you could multiply, right? Sometimes I just like, I'm at a restaurant or I'm standing up here And they're somewhere there in the back of my head, right? One in 13, one in six, one in four. People all around us are struggling. Many of us are struggling under the weight of that kind of darkness. The Bible proclaims that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. It's no accident that Christmas is connected with light, just in the symbolism, right? Just look around you. Um, there's light all around. The candles that we light here and the strings of Christmas lights you almost fell off your roof trying to hang up in the last week or two. Um, at the darkest and coldest time of year, we have this sense that there's something beautiful about that light. But just the sort of light that we light at Christmas in itself is really inadequate in the face of the kind of darkness that we were just talking about. There's this well-intentioned sentimentality, I think, that comes with the holidays that says, you know, just cheer up and laugh with your friends and set out your cookies for Santa and huddle in front of the fire and drink your eggnog and just believe that, you know, things really aren't that bad. Except that sometimes they are that bad. I mean, what do you do when that family isn't a source of laughter, but a source of tears? What do you do when you don't know if Santa's going to be able to afford to come this year? What do you do in the face of all the heartbreak and loss that this world can bring? Um, I mean, what good is a crackling fire and eggnog? The good news that we proclaim at Advent is not Christmas as a celebration. It's not family and pie and holiday cheer. The good news of Christmas is that the God of the universe has drawn near to us, that he has broken into the darkness, and that through what he has done, things are starting to change, and things will be changed. The darkness has been interrupted. And the way that we're going to try to do that is by taking a couple of these different themes in scripture that are about the ways that God breaks into the world, and tracing them through scripture, and seeing how they ultimately connect to Jesus. And this morning, we're going to trace the first one of those themes. It's um, the theme of what's called covenant. God draws near by entering into a covenant with his people. Now, I know some of you might be wondering what that word means, and we're going to define it in a minute. But first, we're going to start way back at the beginning of the whole story, okay? Um, 
Here at Kish, normally we just kind of pick one text and walk through it, and I know a lot of us are used to that, but um, these are going to be a little bit bigger picture, so we'll get to Jeremiah 31 in just a minute. But first, way back at the beginning, there's Adam and Eve, right? And they're the first parents of all of us, and they rebel against God. He puts them in the world in this place of blessing and hope and joy, and instead they say, no, it's ours, and they try to set themselves up as gods. And that's where the darkness starts, in that rebellion against God. And the early chapters of the Bible are really just about how things get really dark really fast. So like two of Adam and Eve's sons, one of them ends up murdering the other one. And humanity um, spirals downward into warfare and corruption and destruction. God God sends this flood to wipe out most of humanity, right? Um, As a judgment on that corruption. And basically, as soon as it's over, they're right back to doing the same kind of dark things. So the shadows get deeper and spread across the earth. And then in Genesis 12, this totally unexpected thing happens in the story. With no kind of forewarning, with no explanation beforehand, in Genesis 12:1, we get this sentence. And the Lord had said to Abram, who this is his introduction, right? We, we don't know anything else about him, but the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. So God comes and starts talking to this one guy and calling him to follow him to this distant land. And God, he calls Abram, who is later renamed Abraham, all right, this is Abraham, um, and he makes this promise. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God says, I'm going to give you these blessings, and I'm going to do that so that the whole earth can be blessed, so that through you and your descendants, the whole world can somehow be returned to knowing me. And then over the next few chapters of Genesis, this gets kind of fleshed out more. In 15 and 17, he gives more detail. So like in chapter 15, he promises Abraham, on that day the Lord will make a covenant, or on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. From the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So God promises this land to Abram's descendants. And then in 17.4, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants. So he promises him descendants and somehow many nations and kings coming from him. And he promises him this relationship, right? That I will be your God um, and the God of your descendants after you. So God makes this covenant with Abraham. And it's probably a good time to now define that word now that we've seen it used. A covenant is a set of promises that creates a relationship. That's the simplest definition, a set of promises that creates a relationship. So God comes and he makes these promises to Abram, but um, those promises aren't just sort of random things out there. Those promises center around creating this special relationship between God and him, right? That, that it forms this kind of union and connection between them. Marriage is a covenant. That's the, the, if you've heard that word before, that's probably where you've heard it used. And, um, and that's because it's that, right? It's a set of promises that two people make to each other that as they give themselves to those promises creates this relationship of husband and wife that wasn't there without them. 
And I know you might be wondering where this is going and where Jesus is going to come into this, and we'll get there in a minute. But first, I just want to point something out about what we just read. Um, in human religion, the, the, the stories that we tell are always about people moving toward God. Have you ever thought about that? Um, that? That God or the gods or whatever are out there somewhere, and what we have to do is go out there and find them. We have to reach some level of moral perfection or get some enlightenment or discover some hidden rituals or climb Mount Olympus or whatever it is, but we have to go out there and get to the gods. And what's so striking about this story is that's just not how the Bible works, right? Abram is not a mystic or some super moral dude. We know literally nothing about him, but then suddenly, bam, God starts talking to him. Now, it's true that Abram does end up showing faith in response to God, which is the thing, while he has many faults, that's the thing that scripture praises him for. But that faith isn't what gets God to make this covenant, right? That faith is the way that Abram responds to these promises that God is making. God moves first, and Abraham responds to his movement. And that is always how it works. We'll see that every time as we talk about God drawing near in these next few weeks. The Bible is not a story about us clawing our way up to heaven to reach God. The Bible is a story about God pursuing and chasing after and making himself known to us. And that's important because we need a story like that if we're really going to have any face in, or any hope in the face of this world's darkness. I think often in our day, the message of hope that, try, that people try to deliver is sort of a we can fix this message, right? That if we just got our acts together and if we just all understood all of the facts and we just all voted the right way, which means the, my way, right? And, and thought the right way, which means my way. You know, I mean, if we just got everyone to agree that the world would be fixed. And, um, and, and maybe um, if we could do that. But the thing is, it's us who broke this thing to begin with, Right? I mean, we are the source of the darkness in the world. All those statistics that I listed at the beginning of our sermon, those aren't things that just happen. Those are things that people do to each other and to themselves. So telling us that we should have hope because we can fix this is like telling a drowning man that it's okay, he can just swim his way out of it. What Christianity offers is a hope that there is light shining into the world from beyond it. That God is at work driving back the darkness. And yes, we are called in light of that to work and do things. It's not that we aren't called to be at work, but, but our, our role is reflecting that light, right? Not creating it. Our job is not to, to shine so brightly that we defeat the darkness. Our job is simply to embrace the darkness that's shining into the world from beyond it and then shine it into this world's shadows. And that's good news because it means that there is hope for the world. That, that, um, that I can have hope because something beyond me is at work in the world. Something bigger than me, something stronger than me. There's a goodness and energy at work in the world that's greater than I am. And so that can give us hope that the darkness maybe won't have the final say. But so we see this God moves towards us and he enters into this relationship with Abraham. And then from there, we see him start to build on that relationship. So Abraham does have offspring, and they become this nation of Israel. 
Um, and this is a super cliff note story of the Bible, okay? But so, you know, the nation of Israel gets, gets formed and they end up in Egypt and they end up under slavery and God comes and it's, you know, all the like plagues and parting the Red Sea and all that stuff and brings them out of slavery. And then he brings them um, to this mountain called Sinai and there God comes and meets with them um, and establishes this kind of second covenant with them, building on the first. And this is in Exodus 19. So here's how God begins that covenant. He says, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God says these words, and then in the next few chapters, he gives Moses this law, um, which if you've ever read the Old Testament, it's the Ten Commandments and all of these other laws about things. Um, But all of that stuff that follows is based on what we just read in these verses, because they do two things that really make all of that make sense. And the first thing is that they tell us the purpose of this whole covenant. Verse 6 of what we just read, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Remember, God tells Abraham, he says, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. And this is the beginnings of how that seems to be working out. A priest, right, in that world is not just some dude who does some religious stuff. A priest was a go-between between human beings and God, right? He represented the human beings to God. He'd come and offer sacrifices and prayers, and he represented God the human beings. He would speak his word to them and teach them and lead them. And God says that Israel is meant to be a kingdom of priests. That if you think about the world writ large and all of humanity, this this people's job was supposed to be the priests, right, that represented God to the world so that the nations could look at them and say, oh, this is what God is like. These are his representatives. And they're meant to do that by being a holy nation, That word holy means set apart. It means morally set apart, and it just means set apart in general. And that's that's what Israel is called to be, both set apart in a general way, which is why they're given all these specific things about dressing differently and eating differently, and also morally set apart, that they're supposed to serve as examples to the nations of how God calls us to live. And that's actually still our mission as God's people. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but um, in the book of First Peter, Peter talking about the church, God's people in our day, says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> right? That's the same language that God used to describe what he's seeking to do with Israel to be a holy people and a royal priesthood to show God to the world. But in addition to that purpose, then, we also see in Exodus 19 that God gives this condition to the covenant with Moses. In verse 5, he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You see the condition there, right? If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. And look, this isn't God saying, you better follow the rules or I'll be very peeved at you. 
That's, that, that comes out of this purpose that God has, right? He's saying, I want you to be this kingdom of priests and this royal nation, and the way you're going to do that is by living different lives. So you've got to live different lives, right? You've got to seek to live as these people in order for this mission to happen. And so far as you fail to do that, you're failing to shine this light that you're supposed to be to the world. That's not saying, also, just to be clear, that Israel had to sort of obey in order for God to love them, all right? I think sometimes we read the Old Testament that way, but God is already in relationship with these people, right? This is building on top of that promise that he makes to Abraham, Um, and over and over, Israel breaks this covenant, and God always comes back and tries to draw them back and restore them, right? But it is saying that there are consequences when they disobey and turn away from it. There's consequences for them. There's a sort of discipline that's meant to correct and call them back to their purpose. And there's consequences for the world. That Israel isn't being this kingdom of priests and this holy nation. They're not showing God to the world the way they're meant to be when they don't live out the way that he's calling them to live. One of the things I think of often is this idea that we as the church are supposed to be the body of Christ. If you've been around a church very much, you've probably heard that image, the body of Christ. And that's actually used a couple different ways. Part of being the body of Christ is just saying that you appreciate our diversity. So you say, well, I'm a hand, um, and hands are great, but if a body was just like a thousand hands all stuck together, that wouldn't be great, right? <laughs> that, that even though I'm a hand, I need to appreciate, you know, the heart and the feet and the, the eyes, that, that every part of the body is different and does a different thing, but is important. And part of the image of the body of Christ is to also stress our connection to each other and that we can't see one part of the body hurting without hurting along with it, right? The hand can't, I don't know, like stab the leg and then not expect that it's also going to suffer part of the pain and consequences because we're connected to each other. But there's a third sense in which we are the body of Christ in Scripture too. We are Christ's body in the sense that we are Christ made visible and physical in the world. That Jesus has a body and he is the head of the church, but his body and his headship are from heaven right now. The way he's physically present in the world is through us, people who are connected to him as his body. And that should be a mission statement for us, right? We are Christ made physically present in the world. We are the priests to the world that are meant to represent God to them and show God's love. And so that means like like when we pray things like, Jesus, help this person. Jesus, be with this person. Jesus, bring healing and justice and peace. He can do that apart from us, and he does. But one of the main ways that Jesus answers that prayer is by saying, go do it. This, you, you are how I am being present. You are how I am bringing peace and comfort in this world. That is our mission statement, that we ask, what does Jesus care about? And then we should be caring about those things. And what are the places in the world that need Jesus? And we should go there. Because as we do that, we are being that kingdom of priests and that holy nation. So think about that this Advent season. It's a good time to. What does it look like to be on that kind of mission for you in particular? How can your family or your time or your resources or whatever be used in a way that brings that kind of blessing and healing to be Jesus' physical presence in the world? What does it look like for you to be that presence in your home or your workplace or your neighborhood? All right. So anyway, back, back to the story. We have this next covenant 
And um, like we said, God makes this covenant with Israel, but Israel doesn't keep it. Over and over, they fail to keep it. And a lot happens over the span of the next, like, thousand years. Again, super cliffs notes, Israel fails to keep it, and then God gives them a king in King David, and he makes another covenant, and we're going to touch on that next week, actually. Um, but, um, but he promises David this throne to lead and rule Israel to try to help them to be this kingdom. Um, but having a king doesn't fix things, because sometimes the king is good, and that does help, but a lot of times the king's terrible, too, and he just leads the people into even more sin. And ultimately, Israel ends up in exile, being led away into captivity. And God raises up these foreign empires and uses them to break his people. And they're there in slavery, almost like they were in Egypt. And that is where the scripture that we read this morning is spoken to them. From Jeremiah. In verse 31 of chapter 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It isn't that God is ditching those past covenants, but they aren't enough, apparently. They aren't enough to make this mission of blessing flow. And so God says that he will establish this new covenant. And he has to do this because we, all of us, are sinful. Verse 32, it's not like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. All right, so then he lays out this new covenant. And as he does, there's three things that are new or that are special about it. Three things. First, this new covenant is internal. It's internal. Look at verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after this time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So it's not, so it's saying that God is somehow in a special way not just giving us this outward thing to do, but he's somehow making this internal for us. That, I mean, people were always being called to live and believe this thing from the heart, but God is doing something in this new covenant to, to, to drive it down into us so that it's not just that we have these outward rules to obey and these outward rituals to follow, but that somehow down in our hearts we have God's law written. And this new covenant is also gracious. It's gracious In verse 34, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And again, I mean, there was, there was grace in the covenant before that, right? There was sacrifices and there was God's love and forgiveness and God's promise to Abraham that he would take punishment upon himself. But the thing is, everyone in that world understood that there was something temporary about what they were doing. That, you, that it wasn't actually the case that you could go do some terrible thing and then like kill a bull and that that magically paid for it. Um, within the Old Testament, you see it understood that it says that God is choosing to, to, to acknowledge that as a way of looking over sin, but that's not actually paying for it, right? And so God is promising that this is what's happening, that the final forgiveness that those things pointed to is coming, a forgiveness that fulfills those gracious elements, that finally and truly deals with our sins so they're remembered no more. And then all of that in the new covenant is also final. That's the third thing about it. It's final. This isn't just one more step in the story. It's the ultimate thing that everything else has been leading towards. Jeremiah pictures this, this rebuilding of Jerusalem as kind of this picture of it, as this restoration of everything. It will be rebuilt, but with a sense of finality. In verse 40, the city will never again be uprooted or demolished. And all of this will be done 
by the Lord because of his promise and his power. So verse 35, this is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so its waves roar, the Lord is his name. So God's saying this, this is final because it rests on my power and faithfulness. That I am doing these things in this final way, in the same way that I hang the sun and moon in the sky. This is the new covenant that God promises in Jeremiah. And that new covenant arrives in Jesus. Here's how the book of Hebrews says it. He says, You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The author, there's, he's using all these different Old Testament images to explain what Jesus is doing. And one of them is that Jesus has come as the mediator, as the one who establishes this new covenant. Jesus establishes the new covenant in a way that is internal. That we aren't just called outwardly to be a part of some social group that takes his name. We are called to embrace and have faith in him from the heart. And as we do, he gives us his Holy Spirit that is actually at work in our hearts, impressing on us God's word. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. He says, It is clear that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts, that we have the Spirit in us and God is now in us at work, not just at work around us in the world. And God establishes this new covenant in a way that is gracious every, every month. In just a minute, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? And what does Jesus say over the cup? He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. In his death, Jesus fulfills that promise of forgiveness that all those, those old signs pointed to. That is the way that God can choose to overlook sins. Not because, you know, just you kill some animal, but because God himself paid their penalty. And Jesus establishes the new covenant as something that is final. We are secure in it because we are secure in him. In Hebrews 8, the author uses the new covenant language to talk about Jesus being our new high priest, but he says he's different than the old high priest because he's also God and he cannot sin and he cannot die and he cannot fail. And so we have a full and final confidence in the work that he has done. So the question I just want to leave us with this morning, if that's what's happening in Jesus, is do you realize that that is true? I mean, do you recognize that that is what's happening and what we're celebrating this season? I think sometimes we read the Old Testament and we see the way that God's people fail over and over and over and we think that that's our story too. And in some ways it is. We do fail as the church in some big ways. And there are parts of the church that have lost sight of Jesus in the name of respectability or power and other parts of the church that have turned aside chasing after sinful pleasures. And all of that is true, but we live in the age of the new covenant. God has put his law in our hearts, not in a way that means we perfectly keep it, but in a way that means that God is at work by his Holy Spirit to grow us more and more into it. That is happening through what Jesus has done. 
We live in an age of the new covenant where Jesus has finally and fully dealt with our sin. And it has been completely paid for by the cross. And yes, there's a sort of loving discipline that we do sometimes experience as God seeks to correct us. But that, that discipline is for our good and it is not judgment because there is no judgment left. All of the judgment for all of the evil things that you have done was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. We live in the age of the new covenant and God is accomplishing his mission through us, his mission of salvation to the world. That that light shining in darkness, um, that isn't just sort of like um, a job that we're supposed to hopelessly do, but that has happened, that, that Jesus, by coming into the world, is like this tear in the darkness through which the light is shining, and that God is shining through it into us and out of us, and that he will ultimately rip it wide open when he returns. Those things are certain. God makes these promises in this new covenant that he will carry out. That the moment when Jesus came and through the work that he did, the victory was finally and surely won. So let's live like it. We live in a story where light is shining into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So let's join with Jesus and take up that light and carry it into the world. Through him, that's what is happening, and that's what we're invited into. God has promised himself to us, and he's given himself for us, and now he goes with us as we go out into this dark world. Would you pray with me? Father, the darkness is heavy. You are shining into it through Jesus Christ. Pray that you would give us hope in that light, that you would teach us to shine it forth. Pray these things in his name. Amen. We have the privilege this morning of partaking of the Lord's table. As we do that,